those who I have not met, my name is Anna. I'm one of the pastors here. And to everyone watching online, a special welcome to you wherever you're joining us from. So glad that you can be with us this morning. Uh, So we are, like John said, we're in this series of Ephesians where we're walking slowly but surely through the letter to the Ephesian church that's written by Paul. And uh, we're taking our time, which is great, but this morning is really a shift in gears. And I'm excited to spur us on and encourage us with some of the teaching that Paul gives to the Ephesian church and how we're able to then mimic that and how we're able to be inspired by that. So it was over about a year ago, I went to an event. I was up in Brisbane and It was with a bunch of people who specialize in reading the current climate of Australians and their attitude and their perspective on faith and church. And so it was a research group called the Barna Research Group, also Alpha was there. And uh, we were kind of unpacking what some of the statistics are in how people view religion. And We're looking at the barriers that people have to actually Christianity and what is it that public perception has around our faith and our community. And it was very troubling and um, quite sorrowful to hear that one of the biggest barriers that people had to finding Jesus was actually their experience or their perception of the church. And I don't know how that sits with you, and it's probably not new to many of you, but for me, that was so upsetting. The very thing that is the hope of the world, the very entry into people perhaps uh, receiving Christ was actually the stumbling block that people found themselves stumbling over. And I thought, how do we reconcile that? How do we... uh, represent Christ well? How do we change the narrative? How do we help people's perception to see clearly uh, the God who we worship? Jesus calls the church his bride. The fact that he's coming for this beautiful body of believers, this community that are uh, in accordance with his own nature and his character. But how do we change the story for people who are perhaps struggling with the whole idea of church. And we can easily say the media is ruining it. Um, But what's interesting is that it wouldn't be surprising that in a room like this, and perhaps those watching online have had a similar experience, but it would not be surprising to know that people here have felt let down by the church. They've felt disappointed. Perhaps their expectation has not been met or their perspective of how the church should be is not how they have received it. And the bad news is we probably will let you down also because we too are fallible, we too make mistakes, and even we're reading the Old Testament together at the moment as a church, and we've just walked through the book of Judges And we've seen that they make some terrible mistakes and decisions. But we too are very much able to do what we think is right in our own eyes instead of Christ's. But what I hope is the good news this morning is that we're given this beautiful blueprint. We're given this instruction manual in how as the church we are to be. 
how we are to act, the church that Jesus longs for. Paul spells it out nice and clear, and my hope this morning is that we are reinvigorated to be that church. We are inspired and equipped to be able to live that out. We are not only believing who God is, but our behavior reflects the fact that he dwells in us. Does that sound good this morning? Did I shock you with a bad start? I hope that you are feeling excited to know what the, what the hope is. So we are in chapter 4 and we're picking up and we're reading the first 16 verses and we're going to see what Paul has to commission us as the Church of Christ. It is titled Unity and Maturity in the Body of Christ. So you can follow along as we read. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip His people for the works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul learned to use a full stop. My gosh. (laughs) Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forward by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is at the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So let me give you a little bit of context as to how we find ourselves at these verses. The first three chapters, we've looked at it in the last six weeks, the first three chapters of the letters, the letter to the Ephesians is really spelling out the belief system, the understanding of who God is, praising God the Father for his love that is endless towards us. Paul actually established and pioneered this church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was very much a city much like ours. It was a metropolis, it was a melting pot, it was a sense of lots of religious activity, not necessarily in the form of following Jesus. There was a lot of business and trade and a lot happening in public discourse. There was a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas. 
And what Paul is trying to do is he is trying to set their course straight, to redirect their attention, to to have them walk in this path that they uh, started off with, with a strong belief in God. And so Paul, he's very fond of these people. He's actually spent three years with uh, the Ephesians, which is more than he spent with anyone else. So they have a place dear in his heart. And we see that in the way that he prays for them. We see that in the way that he esteems and is so thankful for what he's hearing of their faith. But remember that Paul is now in prison. Paul is now uh, captured and he is being held for his passion and his determination to see the church further and therefore the the actual politics are saying to him no no no, we, we actually want to stop this progression so Paul is in prison he's writing to one of his favorite churches that he's established and he's commending them to not only have a belief system that is strong but now to have behavior that reflects that Lynn H. Hockick she's a uh She writes a commentary on the book of Ephesians and she says, to know Christ's love in all its expansiveness is to respond in behavior that honors the magnificent gift of grace. So this shift is from not only just knowing all about God or not just getting all of your ducks in the row when it comes to your theology. It's saying, what good is that if you do not live it out? If all your understanding of God is internal and it's not reflected externally, how much is that actually giving uh, worship to Christ? She says, behavior that honors, that reflects the magnificence of the gift of grace. So this morning, Ephesians, we've themed this, how now shall we live? How now as a church shall we live? How do we become the church that Jesus longs for. We're going to look at two different things this morning in these verses. Um, So we're going to look at unity and we're going to look at maturity, the two themes that Paul is writing about. And the first one we're going to look at is, is unity. Unity is woven all throughout these verses. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live a life that is worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life, go out there and live a life that is in line, that represents, that shows people the life and the, receive, uh, the calling you have received. The thing about calling is that sometimes it's a trigger word for us. We think, Anna, I don't know what my calling is. How do you find your calling? What is my purpose? Uh, and so often we put this tension on knowing what your individual calling is. But I think what Paul is doing here is he's reminding us that we actually have a shared calling. You might think, oh, I'm called to be a social worker or a teacher, but they're just your assignments. Your calling is a shared one, and that's to be a follower of Christ. We all have one calling. So we need to be unified in that sense. And and the wording around live a life that is worthy of, actually in the Greek gives this imagery into a balancing scale. So it's saying if on one side of the scale you put this shared calling, this upward calling, this heavenly calling of following Christ, listening to his voice, following his lead, seeking first his kingdom, if you have that on one side of the scale 
on the other side of the scale is then how you live that out. Does your life, your actions, how you treat the people in close proximity, how you uh, treat strangers, does your life balance out with this calling that you have received? Live a life that is in balance with the calling, that is worthy of the calling. And if you're like me, you think, oh my gosh, I could never live a life that is worthy of saying that I am just wholeheartedly following Christ always, that, that it's in balance and in check. I'm never worthy of that. How, how do I even become worthy of that? And lucky for us, Paul spells it out for us. Of course he does. Very instructional. He says that there are four ways that we can live a life that is worthy of this calling how we can reflect and align with and represent Christ well. So the four things we have is to be completely humble, to be completely gentle, to be patient, and how we can bear with one another in love. Four key things Paul gives us so that we can be a unified church. First one we have is be completely humble. So humility, humility to us is a virtue. It's something that if anyone was to say, I want to be more humble, we would say, oh yeah, that's great. But in the uh, Roman Greek world that they were in, humility was not actually a virtue. The philosophers of the time did not write about it. They did not esteem it. It was not seen as something to pursue. And so this word is actually very foreign to them. It would be the same as if I was to say, you know, be a more judgmental person. You are to pursue judgment. That is not something that we actually esteem. That's not something that we would say, oh, I'm working on that. I'm working on being more judgmental. (laughs) It's not something that we pursue or we actually want to be like. Similarly, for these guys, being humble was not something that they would pursue. So where did they get this idea from? They got it from Jesus, of course. He says in Matthew 12, come to me all who are weary and heavy burden and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus models to us what having humility looks like. The fact that he, did, he came to save the world and to serve the world. He did not uh, lift himself up to a status of being a king or to be the top. He was rather lowly of heart. He was humble. And so for us, if we are to be a unified church, if we are going to be a church that lives in response to and aligned to the calling to follow Christ, we have to be like him. And we have to be like him in his humility. Second, we have completely gentle. Now, gentleness uh, is actually not a sign of being weak or being soft. Gentleness is the skill and the art of having controlled strength. It's having discipline not to blow a fuse. And so the idea of being gentle is by recognizing that you want to be in the middle of being very angry and being very apathetic. Neither one of those are good. But in the middle is the wisdom and the self-control of being gentle. Recognizing that there 
uh, when there's injustice, having that anger rile up in you, but then having the control in how you release that. That is gentleness. Again, we learn that from Christ. He was completely gentle in all he did. In the book of James, it refers to the fact that lashing out in anger and responding in hostility is not actually a sign of righteousness. It's not a sign that you are letting God rub off on you and his character dwell within you. We are to be completely humble. We are to be completely gentle. Thirdly, we are to be patient. Why is this always the hardest? In my small group a little while ago, we looked at if God was to uh, show us one of the particular fruit of the spirit that we might need to come into bloom in our life a little bit more, which one would it be? And after about six months or so, one of the girls came back to small group and she would just out of the blue reflected and she said, I wish I didn't choose patience. It is so hard because patience, the root word of patience is anger, but the idea of how that is worked out, the adjective of it is that it is a long time. So it's the idea of having a very long fuse. You're still going to get angry about things. They're still going to rail up in you, but it's about having a long fuse, being patient in how that's released. Patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5. Therefore, if we are to have patience in our life, we need to have the Holy Spirit at work. We need to learn from him what patience looks like. Lastly, it says bearing with one another in love. We are not called to be church by ourselves. We are not called to have this unity between us and God and no one else. We're called into community. Look around this room. We are called to bear with one another in love. The idea of holiness for holiness sake or righteousness for righteousness sake will most likely lead to pride in oneself because you're not actually recognizing that you're needing to outwork these gifts and these skills with one another. Bear with one another in love. In Colossians 3, there's this beautiful imagery that talks about love being your kind of all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Make sure that you're always putting on love. Love is what builds the church up. It's what people experience in us, the love of God. That will be the most accurate and beautiful picture of the Father heart of God. We are not individual Islands, we are not sitting in our seats by ourselves. We are in community with one another. Let's be united in that. Let's bear with one another in love so that we share this unity together. Paul says as well to make every effort to keep the bond, uh, sorry, to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity. It doesn't say to create unity. We already have it. God, Father, uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God shows us this beautiful picture of unity. We have unity in Christ. So we are to keep it. We are to maintain it. We need to fight for it because unless we're doing these things, we will start to fragment 
we will start to be divisive. We will start to be competitive with one another. That's why Paul is giving these virtues to follow. We've got humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Unity does not mean the same, though. We have a beautifully creative God. He has created humanity with such diverseness, with such uh, individuality in each one of us. So unity does not mean that we are all the same. In the message translation, uh, I love how the paraphrase Eugene says, um, he says, you are called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. He then goes on to say, but that does not mean you should all look and act and speak the same. You were called to travel on the same road and to do it together, but it doesn't mean that you are all to look the same. There's beautiful harmony and diversity within our community. And this week, some of you may notice that it was National Reconciliation Week. And the idea that actually we are called to be unified as a people group, to be marked by love, to come to a place of reconciliation and forgiveness. And this should not be something that we are taught by our world. This should be something that is so close to our heart because it's close to Christ's heart. He reconciled us to the Father. He is in the business of unity. And so I hope that us this week, we are reflecting on what it means for us to have this within the realms of our nation. The fact that we are able to recognize past hurt, to recognize terrible behavior on both ends and that we're able to find a common ground. We're able to find uh, a, a reconciliation, a unity And let that be a picture of our churches. Let that be a picture of us as as humans, that we are made in the image of God and we are to recognize that unity is in diversity. And that's the message that we have seen all throughout the last three chapters of Ephesians. We've seen that Paul says there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, that actually the grace of God, the gift of grace is given freely to all. And so it's a beautiful picture of unity in diversity. And with that, though, you need an amazing amount of maturity to be able to pursue that. And so our second point is how we are called to be a church that is mature. What does maturity look like, though? What are the markers of maturity? I'm the young adults pastor here, and so many people ask me, what what age group is that? To which I say... 18 to 35 or until you want to disassociate with us. And the thing is, we, we don't necessarily know in ourselves what these markers or what the destination of maturity is. We might be walking down a road and looking for signs that we're maturing, that we're actually moving forward. But what are those signs? What are those markers? And how do we translate those into our, our spiritual life? How does one become spiritually mature? How do you become a seasoned Christian? How do you get the title of prayer warrior next to your name? How do you become more mature in Christ? And so Paul, in in these verses, he's saying that I, I don't only want you to be unified, but I also want you to grow in maturity. 
Do not be a church that stays at infant level, but rather want you to press on and to mature together. So three things that uh, Paul points us to in what those markers are, those signs are in being mature. The first one is that we are to receive and exercise the gift of grace. In verses uh, 11 and 12, it says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. These gifts of grace are handed out so that the body of Christ may be built up. He has given us an amazing team. Each one of us is called to play our part, but not each one of us, we do not all possess all of these skills, all of these gifts. Rather, he has placed us in community, in a team, to further the work of Christ. It's this it's beautiful picture of the fact that we have, actually Christ has given us this gift of grace, this immeasurable gift of grace, which means that he has graced people to exercise this gift. It means that in this church, we should have people who are apostolic, who are evangelists, who are prophets, who are teachers and preachers, so that our body, our expression of Christ, the body of Christ here is built up. We offer them in service. We are to walk faithfully in those and mature people and mature churches have all of these people in them. Secondly, we are to know Christ. To be mature is to know him. It says the knowledge of God, of, sorry, the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, obtaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul deems it very important that the people in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, know Christ. In chapter 1, he esteems them to know uh, the fullness of Christ. In chapter 3, he also prays in his prayer that you may know how deep his love is, how wide his love is, how high and how long his love is. Paul is very adamant that these people know Christ. Because if you are to live a life that's worthy of the calling you have received, if you are to do that in unity You are to do that because you know God. You know who you're following. If you are to reflect someone, you need to know what they look like in order to reflect them. We are in a time in our history where we are able to become the best theologians that ever existed. Why? Because we have access to so much teaching, so much information. We are able, with the uh, touch of our finger, to have what ancient saints wrote about, to to know what theologians for hundreds of years have wrestled with. We have all of that accessibility. But it's more of a question is, can we be bothered? Do we put in the work to know Christ? And I'm not talking about knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's not about making sure that you know all the answers and therefore you're equipped for service. No, with knowing comes personal revelation, comes relationship. When you know the love of God, when you know his character, 
when you uh, understand fully who he is, you become more in love with him. You know how to represent him. You know what he's going to say and speak and think in circumstances and you're able to mimic that. I was at Bible college and uh, I was about six months in and I was not sure how I was going to last the three years. Because you see, I'd spent so much time in the Bible. I'd spent so much time reading all about God. I had so much understanding, but my soul was so parched. I wonder if you know that feeling. There was a disconnect between the information I had but, and the revelation in which I was living. And I was perplexed as to how to fix it. And so I asked one of my lecturers who'd been in this industry, if you will, for a long time. And I asked her to coffee. And I sat down with her and I said to her, how do you do this? How do you have your mind in such a way that you are filled with the knowledge of God, but how do you fill your heart? And she looked at me and she said, well, I've, I've come to realize that all theology needs to be doxology. And I looked at her and I thought, that is such a lecturer thing to say. What does that mean? And she said to me, all theology, so all understanding of knowledge of God, it needs to be worship of God. You can't separate them. And so she said, really practically, when you go to write an assignment, write that it will be worship to God. When you're in a lecture and you're hearing so much information, ask how you can translate that into praise and adoration of God. It was this actual shift in my life where I recognized that knowledge should only fuel my worship. It should only give me more reason to be in such awe and wonder of God. It should never be a place where I am just consuming knowledge for my own gain or to think that I can understand God better. We are to be mature in knowing God. Paul is very adamant about this because of the society that the Ephesians find themselves in. They are in a place where the voices, external voices of society are very loud and, and they're very turbulent. I would say it's very similar to what we find ourselves in. And so Paul was saying that they need to know God because they need to be able to test what is false teaching. They need to be able to, within themselves, understand that when the world is saying something, okay, wait a minute, how does that relate to what Christ says? How can I see if that is the craftiness and the cunningness of the world? I can only do that if I know actually what I'm measuring it against. So Paul was adamant in saying you need to know God. You need to grow up in maturity so you are no longer blown here or there by any wind of teaching. Lastly, we are to grow together as a church. If we are a mature church, if we are a united church, we are to grow together but with Christ at the head. When Christ is at the head of our church, uh, we don't want to do anything that isn't within his lead. The science of the day, when Paul was writing this, they had this understanding that uh, you grow into 
your head, like the, the sense that your body grows as your head does. And, and so what Paul is saying here is that if Christ is the head, we as the church grow into Christ. If you cut the head off, the body cannot function. And we as a church know that Christ builds his church and we also are to follow his lead. And so we don't want to do anything that he's not leading us into. We don't want to uh, just go off on our own and as the legs just do whatever they want without uh, that tight, close communication and knowledge and understanding and, uh, and reflection of Christ as the head. It's this idea that we work together, this idea that we are all parts of the body, that each part is for the building itself up in love, building itself, as in the church, up in love together. We are a united church. We are a mature church. And Christ is the head of this church. So I wonder uh, this morning if you're feeling like you, uh, perhaps when I, I mentioned earlier the fact that people have been hurt by the church, and I wonder if that's still you. If you are in a place where you're recognizing that your soul is bruised, that the church is still a stumbling block for you to receive the love of God. There's a disconnect there. And my hope and my prayer is that this morning you are able to see the church that we are aspiring to become. We do want to be this church that Jesus longs for, the one that is mature, that has humility about us. We have a controlled strength because we're gentle. We're able to be patient with one another. We, we bear with one another in love. Forgive us for the times that we have not done that. Forgive us for times that we've got it wrong and there's been division rather than unity and there's been incredible immaturity instead of spiritual maturity. Thank you for still being here. Thank you for giving the church, the body of Christ, another chance. Help us to get it right. Perhaps this is your first time in church and you're thinking, great, now I've got like a checklist and I can see how good this church does. Help us again. Help us to resemble Christ. Help us to show His unity, to show that at His very heart, He is not divisive. He's inclusive. And I pray that you will experience just a tiny little taste of the God that we worship through being in our community. And for those who call New Life home and are feeling passionate about the church, let this be a reminder to us to be careful of those moments where, where we see fraction, uh, fractures, where we see that that spirit of divisiveness start to, to creep in. Make sure that in those moments we're first, we're quick to correct it. Make sure that we can remember this church that Paul has equipped us to be. We are not in the dark. We don't know the way forward. We know the way forward. We know how we are to act, how we are to behave. Let's turn this belief system that we have into this beautiful behaviour that we have on display. If there's people or empty seats next to you, people who 
are no longer in our church and they're heavy on your heart. I'd love for you to feel empowered the fact that they are still in church if they are still in relationship with you because you are the church. The church is a a a place where it's not a gathering in a building, it's a people group. We know that. We are called to be the church in every relationship that we have. So those people who have lost trust in the institutional church, be empowered to know that you can still represent the church. Every conversation you have, every uh, meal that you share, you are able to still put on display You are still able to live this life worthy of the calling that you have received in those those conversations, in those encounters with one another. Be the church to those who have lost trust in the church. Be the true version of the church, the church that Jesus longs for, the church that he calls his bride, the church that he is proud of. Let's be that church. How now shall we live, church? We shall now live as a united and mature church. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have modelled to us what unity and maturity look like. Lord, we repent for the times that we have lost sight of that. Lord, for the times that our lives have not reflected your character, where we have been divisive, Lord, where we have been proud, where we have been angry, Lord, times that we just have not resembled your character and your nature. Lord, we are so sorry. Holy Spirit, will you help us to walk in a way that is worthy of the title of being a follower of you? Will you help us to continue to build this church, build this priesthood of all believers that reflects you, that has you at the head, Lord? I pray that we will follow in your lead. I pray that you will encourage us to continue to live out this mature gospel life, that it will not just be things that we believe, Lord, but it will be how we behave. May every person who comes in contact with us see a glimpse of you through us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.